Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. I cannot believe it's been 100 episodes since we did the 300th episode special. So uh, this is the 400th episode special, and I'm here with... Steve Cohen, podcast producer extraordinaire. Hi, James. How are you? Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. And you know, when when did you start? You started like a year ago, a year and two weeks ago. Yeah, no, it was amazing. Yeah, I think the first guest you brought in was like T from TLC. (laughs) I we had T Boz. We had um, maybe Nancy Cartwright from uh, The Simpsons. You know, was that the even though I wasn't here? Right, you weren't officially on the job. You were still you. Yeah, that's the thing with you. You were bringing in the guests before you even officially started. You were you were over promising and over delivering. I was like, super excited, uh, you know, uh, to to begin working with you. And this has been the best year ever for me. So I, I'm definitely very grateful um, to I mean, be let, along this journey. It's been amazing. This so, heaven, I'd kill myself tomorrow. So, so I guess. Uh, and Jay, are, you've been an audio engineer on how many of these hundred? Uh, maybe two hundreds, I think. But on in terms of of these hundred, how many? You were probably all hundred. Yeah, yeah, probably all hundred. And. Um, just to discuss the format of this, what do I pick, like 15, and then they're going to do the clips from those, or do I go through 100? I think you go through 100. I go through 100? Yeah. But then they're going to do the clips, right, or no? Yeah, they're going to do the clip after. Clips from all 100? Yeah. Okay, so we, we'll, we'll blitz these out. Yeah, let's do this. Because then the, most, the, we don't want, yeah. the clips will take up. Uh, also, it's sorry, my bad, it's 10 to 20 stories, so not 100, <laughs> 10 to 20. So, so Dan Harris was 301, and... You know, I had been on his. He uh, he had been on mine first twice. Then I'd been on his, and this is the third time he was coming on. You know, to talk about you know his book again, ten percent happier, ten percent more happy. Talking about his which, podcast, which I thought was a great book. You yeah, ten percent happier, and and just as a word to you, Dan, um, I'm more than ten percent happier since I started with James. I'm like a hundred percent happier. Well, but but uh, do you are you meditating? I am definitely not meditating, and and I do think you know we we also had him on about his second book, you know, meditation for fidgety skeptics. You yeah, know? yeah. But um, I I think I should. I think in my own way, I meditate where like I have quiet time. That's hard meditation. for me. Exactly. <laughs> The whole, the whole. I think the whole point is of meditation for skeptics is a lot of people say I can't meditate. Sure. And the whole idea is meditation is is and and Dan explains this much better, and we'll let him explain this in the 
in the clip perhaps, but the whole idea is that anybody can sit still and observe their thoughts. Like instead of just being angry and lashing out, for instance, at someone, you can take a step back and say, oh, I'm ang- I notice I'm feeling angry. My body is feeling anger. My thoughts are angry. I'm obsessing on someone I'm angry about. And you could kind of, meditation's about practicing for those moments when when normally your body or mind or thoughts would, would lash out or, or think something obsessively or uncontrollably. And meditation is basically practice for the other 23 hours of a day when you can train yourself to keep calm. And there's so much science that shows that when you build the awareness of your thoughts, your life really becomes better in every way, not just 10% happier, but 10% more successful and, and so on. And, and, you know, like many people on the podcast, Dan's turned into a friend and I really highly recommend his stuff. And I really think, you know, understanding more about meditation and its uses and the ease by which you could start is so valuable. So here's the clip from that. The impact on her has been incredible to watch my wife. I've known for years that my wife, who has all of these stressors in her life, her job is incredibly stressful. She's got had some family drama. She had breast cancer last year. Mm. She we we had an infertility crisis. Then we had a baby, and so so many stressors in her life. And I've known for a long time that meditation could help, but I felt very powerless to talk to her about it because I knew that it would backfire. And to watch her be able to metabolize her own feelings without being owned by them as a consequence of this practice has been enormously gratifying. How, what have you seen just with your eyes different about her since starting? So the way she handles the stresses in her life has changed. You, you could really tell it. There's oh, no yeah. BS. Yes, yes. I can really tell because I didn't know she was meditating. I knew something was different. So, so just to tell the story. So in the course of the book, we, Jeff and I took an 11 or 12 day road trip across the country in a big orange bus and we met people. It's like the Parsons family bus. Yes, except for less cool. And we, um, the conceit of the book is that we're going to go out and meet people who want to meditate, but aren't, and we'll have them get over the hump. And so every chapter is a different obstacle to meditation. Like, I don't have time for this. I can't clear my mind. Uh, this is self-indulgent. And in each chapter we meet, you know, like a celebrities or cops from Tempe, Arizona or social workers from New Mexico. And they talk to us about what, you know, um, what's stopping them from meditating. And we, we get into the behavior change science. We teach meditation, blah, blah, blah. So at the end of the road trip, um, we took like five months to write the book. And then when we wanted to write the last chapter, we wanted to go back to everybody we met to see if they were meditating. During that, those five months, I never went and asked Bianca, are you meditating? Because I was afraid to do it. Um, so, but I, I was noticing changes in her, her handling of stress, the stress in her life. In particular, during this time, there's a lot going on at the office. And I could see that, you know, one of the things I, I, I've noticed in my wife, but in all of us, myself too, is that we were very much the stars of our own movie. And sometimes these are sad movies. And um, we get sucked up into the story of me. And the world constricts when that happens. It's like a sort of horse blinders. And um, I could see that her cloud of woe was thinner and less gray and that she was not so stuck in the stories of uh, well, what was upsetting her and that, and that, the, that the upset about, stu- about tumult at the office wasn't, at the hospital more specifically, wasn't, just wasn't, um, 
wasn't knocking her down the way her resilience was boosted. Well, I want to I want to ask you about that, and then you have your your third. Yeah. First off, I want to say tumult. Is that how you say that? I, I don't know. I, I, I always think, think so. of tumultuous. So I think tumult. Anyway, um, I think it's tumult. Yeah. The hell do you I said tumult? I I just was. <laughs> anyway, uh, so given that I like that phrase, you know, we're we're stuck in the movie of our lives, and hers was very const- often. Many people is very constricted by oh the office tension and this and that. Do you think as those walls started to dissolve, she was able to be more affectionate or compassionate? with you did your communication with her get better yes so i will i should say that my wife actually has a surplus of compassion we are actually quite well matched whereas i think one of my issues is is or has historically been and is the thing that i've really worked on to my great benefit uh, empathy and compassion is really boosting those muscles through meditation has been an enormous value add for me but it was not something i came to naturally my wife's actually the exact opposite she's overflowing with compassion but I, I did notice sort of an availability that um, she's just more available because the things... In what way? What do you mean by available? Uh, maybe the better word would be lighter, too. Uh, that um, in the... We used to have fights. This When you asked me before what were our biggest fights, it was about this, that when she was stressed at work, it was so heavy. I could tell that she was just carrying this, like, big overcoat of anxiety invisible overcoat but kind of visible overcoat of anxiety this big heavy load of uh stress and that it was very inner focused um and and so if i had a problem and i could shake her out of it we could talk about it but her default mode was to be kind of ruminating on things that she was dealing with at the office and while she's ruminating and you're being self-centered and not asking her hey how'd your day go it makes it worse yeah it makes it worse yes Aaron Carroll, Bad Food Bible. He's a doctor. He's also a food columnist for the New York Times. He basically, uh, we basically talked about all the myths about food. Like everybody writes their book like, oh, do uh, the vegan diet, do the paleo diet, do the slow carb diet, do this, that. A lot of these diets work, but you know, a lot of foods that we always think are bad or are good are just myths. And Aaron, Aaron and I go through his book, Food by Food. And, um, you know, what was, what was the, if you remember, what was the biggest myth that was shattered um, for you? I, did he talk a lot? Of, he talked about alcohol, right? Yeah, he like alcohol, about of course, is not carbs, as bad for you as you think. Isn't as bad, you know, um, I think he talked about meat a lot, you yeah. know. So, I mean, and he's... An MD is based in Indiana. The book was very popular, and I thought you guys had a very good conversation because it's always like you're curious about what you could learn from that, and it's not a one size fits all about foods and all of these kind of mores in the food industry. They change. Steve, I'm gonna give you a piece of paper. Write yeah. down. We should have him on again. Oh yeah, Aaron Carroll. Yeah, yeah for sure. Thanks, Aaron. We'll see you soon. My nutritionist is um, a 15-year-old girl who's my daughter. Okay. I was going to say, you don't have a primary care doctor, but you have a nutritionist, but okay. Good. No, no. She she watches all these YouTube videos, yeah, and she's right. become she's become uh, plant-based and mm-hmm. vegan. Like she, and she's very healthy. She's, yep. she's been healthy since birth. I have to commend her, but because uh, it didn't come from me. Yep. And um, But she, her phrase to me is, 
fat is called fat for a reason. Mm. <laughs> and so, so what's the story? There's no fat? evidence that eating fat makes you fat. That is a total, total myth. And so, yes, animals have fat because that's one of the ways that we store energy. And we have fat because that is one of the ways that we store energy. But eating other animals' fat is not what makes you fat. There's, that, that has been disproved again and again and again. So, What makes us fat? Well, probably eating too. That's where, like, you will get into different people that argue about it's the number of carbs, or it's the number of pathways. But in general, I would argue it's it's getting too more than we need. So, you, and and again, just to just to restate it, your argument against carbs is not the carbs itself, but just the fact that it's it doesn't satiate us. Like like eating a, a bowl of broccoli yeah. might satiate you, right? Whereas a bowl of pasta might not. So you no. go for seconds. I drink apple juice and I don't get full. Right. If I eat an apple, I will get full. It's right, a, and apple juice might have three huge, apples. It's pure sugar, and it's yeah. sugar. That's what apple juice is. It's the sugar in apple. No. Well, what's bad about sugar? Well, so added sugars are one of the few things I'm not going to defend. Um, probably that and trans fats. So added sugars are, so even apple juice is technically not added sugars, but I would argue that you're just getting concentrated sugar. That's what juice is, which is why, I don't know why people often think that juice is healthy. You're just concentrating with it. Added sugars, the sugars that we add, not just to soda, uh, but the stuff that they throw into processed food all over the place to make it more palatable, not good. Empty calories, it's associated with a bunch of bad things, including heart disease and obesity and everything else. And there's no one that can make an argument that that is something that is good for you. So added sugars and added sweeteners in, that, are, that are sugars in general are bad. Uh, but that's well, not the same thing as carbs. They, they make you gain weight. They can, they can be, they're, they're linked to increased rates of, uh, I think, eventually type 2 diabetes, although, again, it's not an exact causal pathway that you can just follow. Um, they're linked to higher rates of obesity, uh, higher levels of heart disease. Uh, and so, in general, not, not good. I'm not going to advocate for added sugars. Do you think sugar, and I don't, I've been reading about this recently, that there's rumors that Alzheimer's is linked to diabetes. Do you think sugar is related to Alzheimer's? Not that anything is proven. I mean, I think, all, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is just one of those things we don't totally understand yet. It probably has a lot to do with uh, genetics and familial factors and perhaps some environmental that we haven't figured out yet or some mix of the two. But no one has conclusively shown yet that it's related to sugar. Although I, you know, I've even heard as much as saying that Alzheimer's might be relabeled as type three diabetes. Oh wow, they're really stretching it there. So that that's you haven't heard that. No, I mean I've not only not heard. There's there's no evidence for that. That's that's when we're getting also into all the the information. I mean there are people that can make claims all the time about these kinds of things, but there's no conclusive links. And I this is also where I would also take us take a deep breath. This is the healthiest the human race has ever been ever. We yeah. live longer than ever before. People are dying of almost any disease you can mention at lower rates than ever before. This idea that somehow the food is poisoning us and we're all in mortal danger is, is somewhat bizarre. We're doing great. And by the way, Dan Harris also, he's always a welcome guest. Um, yep. one, thing, one thing we've learned in this podcast, and this is true for business, the best new customers are your old customers. So often I have the most fun and I get the most information from my older guests because now we have a comfort level with each other. We're relaxed and we could talk more. It's, it's, it's fun. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I'll tell you the main thing I learned from him. Uh, I wanted to know, so Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, obviously the best basketball player in history, also a, a genius in his own right, like, He's written not only a great memoir, he's written all these uh, books about Sherlock Holmes and specifically Mycroft Holmes. And just an, an, a, a renaissance man. Like who's Mycroft Holmes? Sherlock's brother. 
But like he was, he was Arthur Conan Doyle. Like only used him in a few episodes. Like like right. Green was interested enough in that to want to write a book just about that, like a whole separate series about Mycroft Holmes. Which, by the way, we didn't even talk to Cream about. We talked about yeah. his basketball career, and he talked about his civil rights career, yeah. and we talked about yeah. turning to Islam and so on. But uh, let's have Cream Abdul-Jabbar back on. We would love on. Cream, yeah. And we'll put him on with Maria Konnikova, who wrote the book uh, Think Like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, so Cream, but, but, we're going to uh, leave the light on for you with Tom Baudet. I, I'm going to tell... I'm gonna tell uh, actually, just two things about Cream. One is, I asked him... I wanted to kind of ask him something no one asked him before. And so I asked him why in all of the photos of him, like I watched his documentary, I watched, I, I must have looked at a, a several hundred photos of him. He's never smiling. And he had a really kind of sweet answer, which is, you know, since he was in eighth grade, he was seven foot two. And so people were always looking at him. Like people would stare at him everywhere. So it kind of like, you know, he was an introverted guy. It kind of brought him into himself. And it's almost like he's trapped in this yeah, prison, absolutely. and that that um, kind of keeps him from smiling. But I'm gonna also so, to say the second thing, which is in his memoir, he tells kind of a joke, which is you know he was good friends with, or for a while he was good friends with Will Chamberlain, who's also seven foot two, also one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And um, he says he and Will Chamberlain went in an elevator. Someone walks into the elevator, looks up at them, and says, "Hey, how's the weather up there?" Will Chamberlain spits on the guy. And says it's raining, <laughs> which I thought was a funny joke. And but let's let Kareem tell his story. Here's the clip. You know, I, there's so many photos of you, and I've seen, um, you know, also the the documentary on HBO about you. And in a lot of the photos, uh, you know, you're so serious, yeah. and you're so. It almost looks like. People can't see you because you're in your head somehow. You're like deeply reflective. Why? What? What's? You know, what stopped you from smiling? All those and all these photos. I don't know if that's a dumb question or not, but no, that that's not a dumb question. That's actually a very good question. I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I've been scrutinized so much because of my height, and I'm always feeling that people are watching me because. Throughout my life, they have watched me. I, they see me first. So uh, I kind of have that uh, wariness of uh, somebody that's in, in, the, uh, in the headlights all the time. It, it's, uh, it, it, can be, uh, it can be daunting. And so, and so again, is this what, I mean, even your documentary, is the, the documentary about you is titled A Minority of, you know, Cream, A Minority of One. Do you feel, do you often feel that, uh, this scrutiny has led you to kind of just withdraw inward and and just be in your thoughts, so you could kind of avoid all the people looking. Well, uh, you you can't avoid the people looking, but um, it probably makes me feel that I need to be on guard more so than the average person who can disappear in a crowd. I can't do that, so I always have to be on guard. I think your experiences with Coach Wooden, who you even wrote a book about, probably helped you figure out as well who you were in a crowd. So, episode 312, skipping ahead a few episodes, episode 312 was Jordan Peterson, who is 
Like that guy is on fire now. We were like, it was sort of like the day his book was released. So he wasn't on fire yet, I feel. I mean, he was already known for kind of his controversial issues in Canada. Um, but now... He was hot, but he wasn't on fire. Right. Like, he was he's hot, but he wasn't on fire. Now. now he's selling out stadiums. Yeah. He's getting his YouTube videos, get millions of views. Uh, I, I heard just last night, his book, in just a few months since it's been out, has sold about 2 million copies. Wow. And uh, which is kind of incredible in today's day and age. Um, you, know, the, you know, the average book on the New York Times bestseller list sells about 3,000 copies. So 2 million copies is quite a bit. And I've read the book now I want to say five times, and it's a great book. I learn new things each time. Like, the guy's a genius. Rather than talking about anything I learned in that particular podcast, because you could listen to the clip, and it's great, and I encourage people to listen to that episode. It's episode 312. Um, the thing that's most interesting, the thing that was interesting to me about Jordan Peterson is that it seems like people on the left think he's alt-right when he's just not. Like, he's totally, as far as I could tell, He's apolitical. He never mentions politics in his book. He never mentioned politics once in the podcast. I've never seen him mention politics in any of his YouTube videos, but people try to make him almost like alt-right when he just simply isn't. I mean, if you look at the chapters in his book, they're, they're sort of like one chapter is called Make Your Bed. The other chapter is called Raise uh, a, Your Child as if you want them to be the person you would like. Uh, I mean, it's just really good advice, but he backs it up with mythology, religion, fairy tales that he gets like, all, you know, insights from, and, and he uses history as a backdrop for, you know, understanding many of the issues he feels strongly about, but he's just very smart, very nice. He gives me a lot. I think what makes my podcast different with him than a lot of the podcasts out there is that he kind of gives, we kind of get on personal issues rather than sort of macro global issues which is what he's more known for but that's a testament to you because i think you would ask him and you well most people kind of let people espouse their talking points and everything you were like what should i do okay what do i need to do here and right because i was i was sort of talking to him oh as you know he's trained as a psychiatrist and then he became a professor and yeah. then he became this pundit i was addressing him as a psychiatrist because i feel the book contains a lot of really good advice by the way He's another one. What's yeah? We have to have we have to have you back, Jordan. Um, we'll also leave the light on for you. What's the latest? Like when you um, read? We've been in touch with his people, and I think like he'd be willing to come back. I mean, he was here shortly after we had him on in this stand-up New York here, and he was at the Beacon Theater, and he just didn't have time to do it then. But you know, again, uh, our best customers are repeat customers, so uh, please come. He would back. be great because now I've read his book an, an extra four times. Yeah, and why why did you read it four times? You know what? Because I, I really, I noticed the second time I read it, huh, I just, I learned a lot more. You know, normally I read, and I read pretty heavily to prepare for each guest. So I read the first book, I took lots of notes, I thought of lots of questions. And then, just for the heck of it, one time, I, I think I took it with me on a, a vacation, and uh, I read it again, and I'm like, you know what, I learned a lot more the second time. So I read it a third time, fourth time, and I'm actually in the middle now of reading it a fifth time. And... I have so many more questions. Like the book has so many layers of depth. It's great. It's like, you know, he's not in this 100, but you know, Nassim Taleb's been on the podcast. It's like reading a Nassim Taleb book over and over again. So I've, I'm on like my fourth time with Skin in the Game, uh, uh, Nassim's latest book. And so many layers. And I feel like my IQ goes up every time I read uh, one of these books again. 
So I think in some cases you're right. They can come out of it. Yeah. In some cases they can't. Yeah. And and not even the ones who are brutalized from early on. Sometimes people just fall apart midlife. Yeah. And they say, "Oh my gosh, nothing nothing good is ever going to happen to me." Because you're right. Life it's not just let's even let's even make it milder. It's not just that life is suffering with malevolence. It's just life is hard every and it's every single day, <laughs> like it never yes, ends. Well, we could add that to it too. And it's grinding; it grinds yeah, away at you as right, well. Yeah, right, which is oh, the sure. chronic low level. Like I got to get up. I got to. The boss is going to yell at me. Yeah, I got to take care of the kids. Yeah, I don't love my wife or husband or whatever. Yeah. So what? Again, a lot of these people. If you say to them, "Well, no, you can change things. Just start yeah. making your bed better or whatever." They're going to say no, no. They, the initial reaction is to defend. No, no. They're going to defend their limitations. You know, there's that saying: if you defend your limitations, then they're yours. Well, they they don't generally. If you don't get accusatory, like so, if I'm working with someone in, in my clinical practice, I certainly don't say, "Well, look, your life is miserable and it's your fault." It's like I don't start with that at all. It's like it's no bloody wonder your life is miserable. It's amazing that it isn't like that all the time for everyone. But, but. It's not the way you want it. So let's see if we can jointly discover ways that you can put things together. And then it's a matter of very, very careful problem solving. So what's a, what's an example where you helped? Where, and again, not just from the, I mean, there's two problems. There, there's two examples of problem solving. One is there's the people you don't know. So there's the periphery people who they watch your YouTube videos and they indirectly received help from what you said. They started their own problem solving and you changed their life and they came up to you and said that. Then there's the uh, uh, people you you see in your clinical practice where you're able to really put your ideas in practice yeah. and help people. So so again, what what what's a specific example where you've helped someone where it seemed inconceivable to them that they could be helped? And then what do you suspect also help these people on the periphery? Well, if you're if you're trying to help someone who's in a rough situation, well, let's say you're trying to help them with their relationship, you might say, you ask them to start watching themselves so that you can gather some information. So that they call that collaborative empiricism. That's a behavioral psychology technique. It's okay, let's take a look at your relationship for a week. And all you have to do is figure out when it's working and when it's not working. Just keep track of that for a while. Or when it's working horribly and it's, when it's working just not too bad. Maybe it never gets to good. Let's start distinguishing between those two things so that we have some, some real sense of what happens when things are not good. Well, my wife ignores me at the dinner table or my wife ignores me when I come home or all we'd ever do is fight or something like that. We think, well... I think you just described all my marriages. <laughs> well, then, then we start slow, small. It's like, well, um, how, would you like it, how would you like your wife to greet you when you come home? Well, I'd like, I'd like her to stop what she's doing and come to the door. It's like, well, ask her under what conditions she'd be willing to do that and let her do it badly. It's like, say, look, like we're not getting along so well. And I got this idea. Maybe if well, one little thing we could do is just change the way we greet each other when we come home. You're watching TV. I'm watching TV. We walk into the house. Neither of us pays any attention. It's just, it's not good. So let's, let's try this for a week because you make it small, right? Let's try it for a week. When one of us comes home, just shut the TV off and say, like, how was your day? And listen for 10 seconds, something like that. Let's see how that goes. And like, you can, you, if you're willing, Carl Jung said something very interesting that I really liked. He said that modern people can't see God because they won't look low enough. I really like that. And this is, this, this is, this is a concretization of that. It's like- Tell me what that means. It means that people underestimate the importance of small things. They're not small. How, you, how your wife says hi to you when you come home, it's not small because you come home all the time. 
Like, how does you, what does your dog do when you come home? It's like, it's happy, man. Comes to the door, it greets you, it wags its tail. It's like, hey, and you're happy. It's like, there's my dog. It's so happy to see me. But it, and you think that's not such a big deal. It's, it's just you coming home. It's no, you come home three times a day. So we could do the arithmetic. Let's say, let's say you spend 15 minutes a day coming home, something like that. And then it's every day. So that's seven days a week. So that's 70, 105 minutes. So let's call it 90 minutes for the sake of the arithmetic, 90 minutes a week. So that's four, six hours a month, 72 hours a week, 72 hours a year. So you basically spend two, eight, two 40 hour work weeks a year coming home. That's roughly 25, let's see, that's one 25th of your total time. It's about 3% of your life. You spend about 3% of your life coming home. Fix it. And you know, it's interesting because- And then is, fix 30 more things. This is the second time, right. So this is the second time you brought up the fact that it's not any one moment or any one thought. It's the fact that these things add up and that, and then that becomes your life. Well, and you just said too, when, when we were talking about this, you said, well, it isn't just that life is tragic and, and, miserable, and miserable and malevolent. It's that it grinds away at you. Yeah, it grinds away at you 50 different ways. Okay, fix them. Fix them. Like, here, here's an example. Let's say this happens to couples a lot. Um, they don't sort out their, their food preparation arrangements. So neither of them really take responsibility for it. The husband is aggravated and irritated because he feels he works enough and it's not really his job in the kitchen. It's sort of a feminine role. He feels sort of demeaned by it. He doesn't really know how to cook anyways. And the wife thinks, to hell with it. I'm not doing this because like it's a traditional role and I'm just being oppressed and... Um, and so, fine, so then what? Well, so no one really buys groceries properly, or if they do, they buy second-rate food. And then no one really cooks, and if they do, they serve it cold, badly prepared, and in a hostile environment. It's like, fine, except that's six hours a day. Okay, so that's 42 hours a week, or 160 hours a month. It's like, that's four... It's 10% of your life is yeah. misery. It's like, fix it. So then you think, well, how would I like the food to be prepared? Well, let's say... It's good nourishing food served by someone who's pleased to prepare it to people who are happy to receive it. That would be nice. It's like, say thank you for Christ's sake when someone makes you something to eat and mean it. And don't whine about having to cook in the kitchen because someone has to do it and you should get your act together so you can do it with some joy. It's like, really? 40 things like that and your life is fixed. But they're all, they're all the trivial things that we do day to day. It's like the things you do day to day are not trivial. Your holiday, that's trivial. Your adventure, that's trivial. Your mealtime, that's your damn life. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. 
I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app. 
track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So then, Steve, this was to your credit, yeah. getting this guest, Dr. Oz. Yeah. Uh, he wrote, uh, again, another book that kind of underlines sort of the mythologies of food and what, what food... Just in a real simple way, what food you need to have in your life to improve your quality of health and quality of life. And I always say, health is is greater than wealth. Like, and and obviously, it's almost like a cliche, but you can't you can't make money if you're sick, and you can't enjoy the money you made if you're sick. So it's really important to focus on health. And food is the energy; it's the only energy the body uses. So. Uh, you know, literally the body converts it into fuel. So, you know, one thing about that podcast that was interesting is a lot of people wrote me and said, I can't believe you had Dr. Oz on. He says so many things that are X, Y, or Z, you know, and they were critical. But if someone's going on TV for an hour a day, you know, 250 days a year, and they have to talk about new interesting things, they're not going to be 100% dead on correct all the time. What we what we're watching when we watch Dr. Oz's show is we're watching his curiosity and his passion for health and medicine and new innovations and new inventions, and we're watching his process of of researching and asking the right questions and and exploring things. And so I really appreciate that about him. I think he's an a, a, an asset to society. And and we've seen actually in many of the future guests we've had or recent guests we've had, a lot of them have con- literally consulted Dr. Oz about medical issues. So he's not just yeah. a, a celebrity TV guy. People we know go to Dr. Oz about their health. He's our heart surgeon and he's worked on some amazing people. And even like, if you remember when, um, and I agree with you, he's not infallible like anybody else. And he, you know, uh, seemed to be pretty forthcoming with a lot of blurbs or whatever, you know, and maybe overexposed. And um, But I do think when that woman who was like, run over by a car. He went over there and helped her or, you know, and he's, like we said, like a lot of people we do know uh, have gone to him and we've always found him to be just incredibly bright and, and caring and hardworking. I have very few complaints about people who selfishly make decisions. In fact, I think most of us should be a bit more selfish in, in that we abuse ourselves at the expense of others and that actually is a bad role model. But right? why do you think that happens? Because I think there's a, a site, like I'm happy to, I've had a podcast about this recently also, I'm happy to tell you to take your pills, but it's really hard for me to take my pills. Why does the individual have a hard time helping themselves? Yeah, I think a lot of this comes from parenting. You think about this. When you as a mom or dad do everything for your kids, what you're messaging to your kids is they have to do the same thing for their children and for their relationships. Mm. Give, 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 give. And giving is a good thing. You want to give, but not to the expense of yourself. And if you're on a plane and the oxygen goes out, 
right? You reach for the oxygen and put it on your face first. You don't put it on your child's face, not because you don't love your child, but you need to be awake enough to take care of your child. And too often in, in traditional and otherwise healthy families and relationships, we sacrifice all for our kids, but the kids aren't going to model that well because kids aren't going to treat themselves the way you treat them. They're going to treat themselves the way you treat yourself. Mm. So if you give up your entire career, if you gain weight, if you don't manage the basic issues in your life effectively because your kid's soccer practice comes first, your kids are going to do the same thing when they have to make that decision. I would argue take care of yourself, make sure you're in good shape, make sure you can actually play soccer with them and then take them to soccer games. I think that there's almost concentric layers from that. There's yourself, then there's, there's your relationships. Like uh, the parents should take care of their own relationship uh, even before they hug and cuddle with the kids because the kids will model that later on in their relationships. And then and then out to health and to food and to medicines and to, to every area, to career, which I might ask you about later after after we talk about the book. Well, the, 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 the best example of all is health. I mean, everything else comes out from that as well. But in, in health, people will frequently abuse their bodies because they can't cope with the stress that's caused by a job obligation they have or a relationship that they're in. Uh, they stress eat, which is, by the way, a very effective way of coping with stress. Why do people stress eat? It works. Very simply stated. Anyone who says otherwise just doesn't understand the science of it. So it I'm makes stressed. I feel like instead of eating like broccoli, I feel like eating chips. Yeah, because broccoli doesn't actually hit your brain like dopamine, the way sugar does. Really? Sugar hits your brain like crack cocaine. It, 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 it smacks the dopamine receptors. It gets you feeling really good. It helps you cope. It works. However, it's maladaptive. So in a small little- Meaning? Meaning that you know, short term, it'll do the D, but long term, it's a bad problem. And it's not the right way to deal with the process. Because if you're stressed out by, let's say, a, a malevolent person in your life, go deal with the malevolent person in your life. Don't medicate with sugar. Or, or by the way, narcotics or any other medication. If you can't sleep at night, the best solution is not a nightly sleeping pill. It's to figure out what's ruminating that's causing you to not be able to sleep. What's going on deep inside your body, maybe because of the food you're eating that's preventing you from getting night of rest that you know is so vital to your well-being. And when we don't deal with the root cause of problems, which at its very core is what this book's about, then you end up putting layers of paint on. Listen, if there's a crack in the wall in this beautiful studio we're taping in now, you don't just paint the crack, you fix the crack. Otherwise, the paint's going to chip off anyway. So go to the root issue. Food was always how we fixed it because when you walk into a grocery store, you're walking into a pharmacy. That's exactly how our bodies receive that. Uh, another guest, Annie Duke, famous poker player, maybe one of the most successful, maybe the most successful female poker player in history. She wrote a book, Thinking in Bets. And the idea is, is that everybody in general is very concerned when they make a decision, am I making the right decision or the wrong decision? And, and then they measure the success of the decision by the outcome. Yeah. So if the outcome was good, then they think they made a good decision. If the outcome was bad, they made a bad decision. That is actually completely untrue. And people who do... Um, who play poker understand that people who do, let's say, statistically oriented investing or day trading understand this, but you have to think in terms of probabilities. So if I make a decision where there's, uh, there, I, I won't explain her whole methodology. You know, you can listen to the episode or, or her clip, but I'll give an example. I might make a decision that has a 51% chance of being of working out for me or a 49% chance of not working out for me. 
well, I might make the decision because it's got the 51% chance, but uh, uh, the 49, I, I end up being in the 49% by the, the luck of the draw and it didn't work out for me. It's not like I could say that was a bad decision. I still made the right decision. Um, it's just not every good decision is going to work out for you. So you want to make sure in life to make as many good decisions as possible, knowing that some of them, the outcomes might not be work out for you, but in the long run, and this is how poker players think, this is how investors think, this is how all decision makers should think in the long run, you'll have a better life as a result of thinking in terms of, by the way, not just probabilities, but thinking in terms of the value of the outcomes. So there might be a range of outcomes with different values. So sometimes you might want to make a decision that only has a 1% chance of working out, but maybe yeah. that's the important decision to make because the value of the outcome is so much higher than the value of the other 99%. Um, and by the way, also this, this kind of goes along with the idea that your process of decision-making is much more important than the outcomes that you're looking for. Again, it's just about making lots of good decisions. Uh, and, and I, anybody who's, you know, basically anybody should read the book. Uh, it's a very great understanding of, of how to make decisions. We always think that right now, oh my gosh, this is, which shoes should I pack for this trip? This is like really important. Uh, but like five years from now, it's not going to, I'm never once going to think about and the importance of it will have no effect on my life whatsoever five five years from now. It's, well, yeah. So I think the example that I give in the book of the importance of doing that kind of mental time traveling in order to be a more rational decision maker is that, so we get really caught up in, we really, really get caught up in the moment. And how we feel in the moment and the kinds of decisions we're going to make and the way we're going to process uh, what's happening in our lives really matters in terms of the how did we get to the moment that we're in and then we just live in that moment. So let me give you a couple of examples that you'll you'll know from the book. So I say, okay, so let's say that you go and you play blackjack and you you go with your friends and you know you're gonna play for like two hours. And in the first half hour, all you do is get blackjack. Just blackjack, blackjack, blackjack. You can't lose a hand. You end up up, say, two thousand dollars. And it's just because everything went your way. But your friends are still playing, so you continue to play. And over the next hour and a half, you lose all but $100 back. You know, how are you feeling about that? Right, so you're feeling horrible even though you're up $100. Even though you're up $100. Now we can do the reverse. You start off the night and you literally can't win a hand. I mean, it's just horrible. And you really want to quit. And you're kind of sour about it because you're down $2,000 because the dealer has just, you know, hit 16, hits a five. Hit 16, hits a five. You know, just every single time. And you're down $2,000, but your friends are like, oh, come on, come on, let's keep playing. So you continue to play, and all of a sudden, you start getting blackjack every single hand for the next hour and a half, and you end up only losing 100 How do you feel about that? And, you know, the drinks are on you. You're, like, super happy. And notice that that's really in-the-moment decision-making. In, in one case, you're very sad that you won $100. And in another case, you're quite happy that you lost $100. And that's, I think, a very puts into very sharp focus how irrational we can be in the way that we process our outcomes when we're caught in the moment like that. Now, if I got you to do a little bit of mental time travel and I said to you, hey, imagine it's, it was a year ago that you went to that casino. Now, which result do you prefer, the $100 win or the $100 loss? If it happened a year ago. If it happened a year ago, you would just say $100 win. Of course. So what happens is that when you can take that extreme zoom lens off, 
where you're just zoomed in on the moment and kind of what's just happened to you. And you can put on a wide-angle lens and, and get that so that you can see it within the scope of time a little bit better and within the scope of what the arc of, of the way that your whole life goes. Then you start to get much more rational about it because what we really are looking for is to think of ourselves like a happiness stock where we want the slope to have a general upward trend. And we understand that there are going to be momentary upticks and downticks, but we don't want to be yanked around by those too much because the more that we're yanked around by the momentary upticks and downticks, the less likely we are going to have that upward slope because it's going to cause us to make really silly decisions like being super happy that we lost $100, which is a little bit crazy. Um, So So how often would you apply this method of decision-making in your life? Like, does the decision have, or or not decision-making, but in terms of point of view, let's say, a type of, this type of point of view, does the, does the kind of um, uh, intensity level of the moment have to be a certain level? Because you can't do this over, oh, should I boil the eggs or scramble the eggs? Like, you <laughs> no. can't do it over everything. Um, you know, is it something where only intensity level is so high or... Well, I, I think and that you have to train yourself to think this way. Sure. I, I think there's two things. One is when you're just struggling with a decision or you see somebody else struggling with a decision. So I use this with my children all the time when they're very, like they come home from school and they're really upset because they got in a fight with their friend. And I'll use this method all the time. I'll say, do you think this is really going to matter in like a month? And they'll be like, no. Because they'll be like, yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, I've gotten in a fight with them before and it's been fine. So basically what you're doing is you're transforming them into a different person the person they'll be in a month mm-hmm. and saying, is it important to that person? I'm getting them to have a conversation with the future version of them. So I'll, I'll give you something similar that that I do, which is almost similar to this. So let's say there are three types of decisions I normally make. One I'm bad at, two I'm good at. So let's say I'm bad making decisions on personal relationships, but I'm good making decisions on business relationships mm-hmm. and I'm good making decisions on advice for my kids. Uh, so if my, so so to take the exact same problem, my kid presents me with the problem. Suddenly the answer becomes really clear. Like if I have, if I have the, let's say I have a personal relationship issue, I might not have any clue what to do. Mm -hmm. But then if I, if my kid comes to me with the exact same problem, I might a hundred percent know what she should do. Or if some, or if somebody's interacting with me in a business situation, how I'm being interacted with in a personal situation, I might know a hundred percent what to do. So I kind of do a version of this, but instead of time traveling for myself, I do the... Like situation traveling. Yeah, I do situation traveling. So I, I love that. That's not in the book. I wish it were. <laughs> well, I'm going to start using the time traveling, which yeah, I Yeah, well, okay, so we'll exchange <laughs> yeah. because I think situation traveling is also really right, good. Does that mean we're like in the same peer group for yeah, decision making? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Jim Kramer... Such a great guest. So grateful he came on the show. I feel like that was a very personal discussion with Jim. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like just talking about stocks, which I didn't want to do. And we didn't do. We didn't, I don't think we talked about stocks at no. all. And you you go back a long way with uh, Jim. Yeah, like I wrote Jim a letter in 2002. And this was one of those situations where I was going broke. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I, I decided, you know what? I'm going to give advice to other people for free as a way of maybe maybe that is a way something can happen. So I wrote him, no pressures to write back. Here's 10 ideas 
for articles you should write. And I remember some of the articles yeah. I pitched him. Um, I won't go into them now, but I remember some of the article ideas I pitched him. And he wrote back, this is great. How about you uh, wow. write these articles? And so he introduced me to the editor of thestreet.com. Took that editor three or four months to get back to me, but I was patient. I would just write every week. Uh, wow. Eventually, I started writing for thestreet.com. But can you explain that whole? Because I know you've told me this. Like when you're looking for something, you feel an accelerated anxiety about it. But they may not be feeling that sense of urgency, right? right. So how so did you how have you reconcile that over the years? Right. So I, so I call this the theory of business relativity. That when you're trying to do a deal with someone and it's really important to you, like this is the main thing you have going on in life, but they have lots of things going on in their life, lots of deals they're making, and it's not. It might be important to them, but it's not the first thing on their to-do list every day. You life feels very, very slow for you. Like, oh my God, another whole day went by and they didn't get back to me. And they're thinking to themselves, like, oh, I'll get back to them within the next <laughs> month because the month's gonna go by fast and they don't have the same and, urgency. Yeah, yeah, a month it should be should be just in time for this guy. And I'm thinking, no, like next minute I thought I was going to start writing for you. So you have to recognize the theory of whenever there's a situation that's important to you, very important to acknowledge, oh, this is the, and this goes back to, by the way, Dan Harris's meditation techniques. It's almost yeah. like a meditation. Oh, I can feel it in my body. I'm feeling anxiety about this process that's happening. It must be what James was just talking about, the yeah. theory of business relativity. So business time relativity. So when the theory of business time relativity takes place, the most important thing to do to not sabotage yourself is sit on your hands. Now, I didn't always know that. So I remember during that time, the editor wasn't getting back to me yeah. because whatever, it was the summer of 2002 and he had other things going on and Jim had many things going on. Everybody had many things going on. I was desperate because I had nothing <laughs> going on. And I remember telling a friend of mine, um, I, you know, I was all indignant. I, well, well, if they're going to act like this, then I don't even want to write for them. And this friend of mine, his name was Fred. Uh, uh, he said to me, uh, don't be an idiot. The editor is going to write back to you. Uh, and then you're never going to talk to him again. And you're going to be a writer for the street.com and you'll begin your professional writing career. So my friend was exactly right. Like that's what happened is that I started writing. Then I started writing books then I sold a company to street.com. Then I started writing for the Financial Times because my initial editor moved to the Financial Times. Then another editor moved to the Wall Street Journal. I started writing there. Another editor moved to Forbes. I started writing there. And I built my whole financial writing career, which led to a, a much more deeper self-help writing career, which led to this podcast. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I think that um, is something that's very instructive for people out there because was that something that was difficult for you to do to just to say, okay, I'm gonna provide all this value to somebody like Jim Cramer, even though I'm not guaranteed of getting something, even though I have to invest time. And why? And what made you have that transition in your life? Like, what was the epiphany? Well, I there was two things. Well, one thing really, which is that I was scared. I was broke. I was, I was scared. I was broke. I was losing my home. I lost all my money. And. I wrote, I, I was, at this point, I was back in shape as an investor. I probably had read 200 books about investing. I wrote software to model the stock markets. Uh, I was trading successfully, even though it was a very horrible bear market. 
uh, and I was keeping alive, even though I had lost millions and millions of dollars, all the money I'd made from selling my first business. And I really, I mean, I read so many investing books, uh, and there are very, there are very few good ones, but one of the best ones I read was Jim Cramer's first book, Confessions of a Street Addict, which was like a memoir of his, it was his memoir at the time. Such a great book. I hope he writes another similar style memoir. Um, and I wrote to all my, at this point, I knew every investing strategy. I had a lot of investing heroes. I understood the business. So I wrote to all my investing heroes and I said, can I meet you and pick your brain? Nobody responded, which nobody should respond. Uh, I wasn't offering anything of value. So I completely switched gears. I really researched each person I was writing and I came up with 10 ideas for their business um, which showed that I put in the work and the effort about them. I was thinking of them only and not me. And I, I never asked in that email, like to Jim Cramer, for instance, I never asked, for, I never said, can I write this? I never asked, can I meet you? I never asked, can I do business with you? I just said, here's, if you write these 10 articles, I would pay to read these articles. I even yeah. said I would pay to read these articles. <laughs> like I would sign up for something to read these articles. Um, you know, like one of the articles, this was a bear market. So there were companies that actually were trading for less value than the cash they had in the bank, which is something that almost never happens. Like it happened then it happened in 2009 and it happened in 1945 and, uh, or 1940. Uh, so John Templeton, famous investor became rich doing that strategy and people were getting rich in 2002 doing this strategy. They didn't become rich till 2003, but I thought it would be a great article. So that's when he wrote back. And, but I, I, so that was a valuable lesson for me. And I've been doing that ever since. So now it's 16 years later. I still write those emails all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, probably the last one, one yeah. email like that I wrote to you. Yeah. Like you've, been am you've been amazing. And it really changed my life too, because I've learned how to do that, you know, and I think, you know, in, you know, in conjunction even with any Andy Duke, like I also just focus on my actions, not my outcomes. And, you know, in the, in the, with the practice of Jim Cramer, you learned a lot by doing all of that, regardless of whether he did anything or not. Like well, you learned by like reading all those books and coming up with those ideas. So. Yeah. Like the, the ideas I pitched him were unique article ideas that I didn't see anywhere else. And I felt he would be the best writer for them after me, which he <laughs> recognized as well. And so, I mean, that changed my life was that one email. If I hadn't sent that email, I don't know what would have happened to me. And then there was a couple other emails like that. And, and ever since, look, you've been with me to yeah. Google. I've flown out to Amazon. I've flown out to LinkedIn. I've met with people from maybe 100 different tech companies and, and other companies because of, of these types of emails. It's so incredibly valuable to do that. But I applied it again during our podcast. In our podcast with Jim, we focused mostly yeah. on his personal life. Yeah, 100%. And that was amazing. He never, I've never heard him talk about it. And we had a great conversation, like a conversation among friends, which we've known each other 16 years. We are friends. And um, one thing I said, you know, I don't do these podcasts to be a journalist or to get uh, lots of downloads or to make a lot of money. Like, you know, the podcast does okay, but it's not like, you know, unless unless you're one of the top five podcasts, you're not going to get wealthy doing a podcast. But uh, I learn from each guest. So hundreds of episodes earlier, I had on 
Matt Berry, who is the fantasy sports anchor yeah. at ESPN. Now, I'm not into sports at all. I'm not into fantasy sports. But Matt Berry's story of reinvention from Hollywood screenwriter to, to being an anchor on ESPN fascinated me. And one thing I was listening, you always listen to the podcast, and one thing I was yeah. listening to with Jim Cramer was he kept talking about the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. And I said to him, Jim, you have such passion for this. You know, why don't you, if you called up the CEO of ESPN, he's going to take your call because you're Jim Cramer, and just write an article about the Philadelphia Eagles for ESPN.com. They're going to publish yeah. it. It'll be great. And, you know, we talked about things like that because I was, th you know, not that he should switch from writing about finance to writing about sports, but he should have outlets for his passions. He shouldn't, you know, lock himself into one thing. But the other thing is, we also talked about, you know, he's, we talked about, you know, his work-life balance. You know, I've always known him to focus so much on work, but now as, and I see this for myself, as I get older, the work-life balance becomes a lot more important. And we talked about that. Was, I love that episode. You were, you were very intrigued by Jim Cramer also because just, you're like, okay, you've been very successful. You seem to have made a lot of money. And what keeps you working 16-hour days, right? You yeah. were very, you were like very, you know, uh, insistent on that aspect of it. And he was like, I love it, right? I love doing what I'm doing. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, um, you know, it's interesting, the people I interview who don't seem, like, like, I love what I do, but I need downtime every day. I really feel like I need downtime or I can't function. Or I get very unhappy. <laughs> like, you've even seen me, like, yeah. you'll schedule, like, four podcasts back to back. Yeah. And I'll literally it's be crabby. crying, like, because I know for each podcast, I've got to prepare at least 10 hours. And I'm like crying. When am I going to yeah. have like a spare moment to breathe? Uh, uh, and, but Jim Cramer seems like he can work 16 straight hours and then wake up and do it again. But we talked about that. Let me ask you this, though. You, you mentioned a lot of things you like about the job, but what about. Do you think there's anything inside of you which is addicted to having a relevant voice? So you, there's many voices out there and the voices change. Yours has stayed consistent through the years and the decades. Do you ever get addicted to like, I want to still be, I need to be still one of those top voices in the space. I wow. still need the fans. Wow. Okay, this is really important because uh, on a one-on-one, -on -one, so I went to the, I went to the Eagles uh, Patriots game, the Super Bowl. And when you do that, you're with your wife. And at one point, my wife just said, you're really into the adulation. Because said, people were coming up to right. you. And I said, well, I'm into the kindness. She goes, no, you're into the adulation. You get a kick out of it. And I said, well, I do like that people like what I do. And she goes, but, you know, do you like what you do? do you, how about you? Forget the verification. That's terrific. But do you like it? And will you always like it? Will you always want to work this hard? And I came back with what she thought was a very short-sighted uh, thought, which I said, I like it now. She goes, no, no, no. Really thoughtful people will think, okay, that adulation is not working for working on what I really, it's not going to last forever. Um, nothing lasts forever. What's plan B? What else do you want to do? And uh, she felt that my avoidance of the topic uh, was, I don't want to say shallow because that's too pejorative, but someone would have heard the conversation and said, my wife's deep, I'm shallow. And I'm really cognizant of that because she is. Uh, she's much more thoughtful about the future than I am uh, because I'm saying, hey, it's a good ride. And I look at it a little more like sports, which is, hey, listen, as long as I can not be Willie Mays, but throw it from the center, from center field, as long as 
uh, I enjoy it. I'm going to keep doing it. And she said, well, what happens if you stop enjoying it? And I come back and say, then I will pivot. All right, we'll get through some more of these. Uh, episode 324, Cal Fussman. Uh, I think if I just say the name Cal Fussman, a lot of people don't know who he is, but he was kind of a editor-at-large for Esquire, interviewer-at-large. He's interviewed everybody from yeah. Mikhail Gorbachev on down. I think he's one of the best uh, interviewers on the planet. Yeah, uh, he's terrific. And we have to thank Jay for that, our engineer, Jay Yao, because he had run into him and was like, he'd be great for you guys. And thank you, Jay. Jay, where'd you run into him? Uh, Dr. Oz. I recorded him with Dr. Oz. Okay, yes, yeah, so the interview is Dr. And I, Oz. I admitted, yeah. like a cow, I'll confess, because you've since become a close friend of ours, and uh, I was a little skeptical. And um, But then once I listened to it, I felt like, wow, this guy is really smart. I think also a uh, good friend of the podcast, AJ Jacobs, recommended we talk to Cal as well. Oh, that's terrific. Because they're both yeah. editors at large at Esquire. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, man, we and that one was the first one we did we did that podcast in my apartment because we couldn't find a studio. And uh, gosh, Cal and I just hit it off so yeah. well. We were like best friends right away. <laughs> and we just, we talked about, look, the art of interviewing is important. There's 600,000 podcasts out there. And I would say maybe a dozen have, you know, people who are really A plus interviewers. And Cal Fussman is, is one of them. And we just talked about it and we had such a fun time. I don't even, I, I should go back and listen to that one. Then I've been on his podcast about minimalism, and we yeah. re-aired that on our podcast. So and uh, we have we have some nice things we're going to do with Cal coming up. So Cal, get ready, get some rest. And uh, yes, Cal looked terrific right. when we saw him. We got to schedule like, that. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna break a record. Yeah. So Cal, be ready. Get your sleep. That almost sounds like a song. Cal, be ready. <laughs> that could be like a country western song. <laughs> I want to get to the idea that questioning not only is a way of connection, but it's like this superpower, like questioning and 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 kind of figuring out how to how to dig in and open people up that provides you housing and income and experiences and surprises and expands your horizons. Like that that is the superpower. That's like your mutant superpower. It, uh, yeah, I I, th I think it is. And like not, if you were, if this was the Justice League, you're like question man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. But you know the the problem with that is I'd have a costume with a question mark on it. And you look and like I the Riddler. I was already taken by the Riddler. <laughs> it's it's an interesting thing because the more that I think about it, the more that I see like what questions can do for people. You you can show your intelligence by asking a question. I, I remember when I was a freshman in college and I, I was on a path to be a sports writer and I went to the University of Missouri, which has like a big journalism program. It was so competitive that there were in this little town of, oh, they they couldn't have had more than 50,000 people, but there was a town newspaper, there was a journalism school newspaper, and there were two university newspapers. And, and so there was so much, so many people were going there to be journalists 
it was so much competition that everybody wanted to be the person who wrote about the University of Missouri football team because it was the biggest, uh, mo most eyeballs were on that. And when I went as a freshman, I realized, you know, I was gonna have to wait like years in order for the seniors to graduate and then the juniors to move on and graduate. And by the time I was a senior, then I could get in the locker room and practice the craft. And I just, I was ready to get in the game. And so I went with the older reporters in the same car while they drove to these away games and just sat in the stands. And I watched the games just because I want to be close to it. And around the fourth or fifth game, there was a big upset that Missouri had pulled off on the team from Nebraska, which had a national championship winning coach and a great powerful uh, tradition. And I just f felt compelled, I had to get in the locker room. There were questions I had to ask. And so I looked down and I saw there was a photographer from the school newspaper I was working at. And he had a press pass dangling around his neck. And I thought, well, he's not gonna go in the locker room. He's done taking pictures. What if I got his pass would that let me in the locker room? Then I could ask my questions. So I got down to the field. He said, sure, I'm not gonna use the pass. Put it around my neck. I got in the locker room and I can remember looking around and there were all these people that I wanted to be. They had the job that I wanted. And they're asking the coach questions and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I had this one question and I just asked it. And there was silence and the coach, like you could see his eyes like go up in the air. He was really thinking about the answer. And then he started to answer and I saw everybody, this was the days before tape recorders, everybody had their pads out and they were busily writing his answer. And I knew in that moment, two things that happened. One, the coach had respected the question and given a good answer to it. And two, I looked around and thought, okay, now I'm one of you guys. Uh, and from that moment on, I had a very different confidence. Right, and, and, and what you showed there is that the art of asking a good question creates a career rather than necessarily knowing all the facts. So people sort of feel like, oh, if I know the, all the facts, then I have a career. But actually the art of knowing what question, like science is all about, people don't realize, science is not about knowing the secrets of the universe. Science is about asking the right questions about the universe and then testing those questions. And so it's really the questions motivate the career rather than having all the information, which changes constantly and is wrong constantly and, and so on. Wolfgang Puck, I was a couple episodes later, episode 328. I just loved his love for food. Like he he grew up in his mother's garden, picking out like just natural ingredients for food, helped his mom cook. 
And you, you could see, it's not just, you know, they always say you need the 10,000 hour rule, you need your 10,000 hours and then you're the best in the world at something. He started his 10,000 hours at the age of five. He's probably got 60,000 hours of yeah. cooking under his belt. And it was just, you know, I'm not even interested in cooking or whatever, but it's to listen to someone who's such an expert at something that's so important in our daily lives. Like what, A, what makes someone the best in the world at something? B, just what's the nuances that separate them out from, there's plenty of like great chefs, but what makes him the best in the world? And, you know, and obviously he's not just a great chef, he's a great businessman. Uh, later that night, I went to eat at his, after the podcast, I went to eat at his restaurant. He sat down with me for a while. He gave me a tour of the kitchen. Just a good human being. I, I love his enthusiasm for, for what he does. That's, we've seen it time and time again. Don't even, don't even try if you're not going to be enthusiastic, if you're not going to be obsessed, if you're not going to love what, what you're doing. Because how are you going to work the 16 hours a day if you don't, if you don't love yeah. it? No, he was definitely a real inspiration, and and we like to always say like how you do anything is how you do everything, and everything he does, he does a certain way, and um, he talked about having the best ingredients possible and how that's key, and I think that's a lesson in life, like have the best people around you, or people love you, care about you, and you know who could help you. You, you know, know and, and those by are the way, ingredients to a good life. But the ingredients to a good life, a pun on Wolfgang Puck. <laughs> uh, uh, but what you just said, how you do anything is is, is how you do everything. That's a Steve Cohen original, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's that's probably the, the quote you've said that's the most uh, important to me. Because I've said a lot. You've said a lot because it's <laughs> no, I've really said a lot of quotes too. Oh, you said a lot of quotes, but like it's really true. Like how he picks ingredients, the care with which he picks ingredients, that's ultimately going to be reflected in the final food someone eats and the energy they take in and how he runs his business and how he picks employees and treats them like you know it's such an important thing and it's 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 a real good trick to looking like I'm not a good judge of people but if you see how they do certain things you can kind of see okay how they do anything is how they do everything yeah. like it's not the case that someone's going to be you know uh, you know like Wolfgang Puck and then just be you know a bad guy in every aspect, yeah. other aspect of his life. It's sort of rare. What I love about hearing you speak right now, it's like infectious in the sense that you run, I don't know how many billions dollars worth empire. You cater to the Oscars. You're opening up all these restaurants. And yet what you love doing is finding the local farmer, going to the farmer's yeah. market, thinking about these ingredients. So this reels us back in time again, 14 years old, you're working in your first kitchen as an apprentice, you do the correct thing and drop out of some stupid high school or whatever and, and start really doing what you love, what you care about. Like, how did you grow in your love for this? Because you could have gone in any direction at the well, age of it, 14. It almost went in the wrong direction because I left my home and my father told me always, my stepfather said, oh, you're good for nothing. You're going to come back home anyway. And I said, I will never come home again. And then I left with my little suitcase. It was 50 miles away where uh, it was. At that time, we didn't have telephone or anything. So if I wanted something, I had to write a letter to my mother. And then I get in this different town uh, and I started to work there. And on a Sunday lunch, we ran out of potatoes. And the chef told me, you have to go home. You know, I fought, you're fired, go back home. 
He and blamed I, you for running out of potatoes? Yeah, yeah. We Why? Out, I was wondering about that because you told the story. Were you supposed to buy the potatoes? No, we, I was supposed to peel them and cook them. That's it. But I was 14 years old and like five foot tall. And uh, so you peeled them too thickly? No. So we ran out of potatoes. Potatoes is a big side dish in, in Austria. You know, yeah. we eat a lot of mashed potatoes and, yeah. and just steamed potatoes and so on. So in the middle of service, there were no more potatoes. So every, the chef freaked out. They... The sous chef came and started screaming at me at the end of service. The chef called me over and said, you're fired, you know, you ran out of potatoes. And I said, I didn't know how much potatoes we need. I just started a month ago. And then I said, I'm not going home. It was really crazy. And so I said, I'm going to kill myself. I'm not going home. So I went on the river. There was a big river with a uh, big high bridge going. So I said, I'm going to just jump in the river. So I was standing for an hour on the bridge looking down and looking down and seeing uh, it was early winter and seeing the ice swimming down the river and some wood things swimming down and I looked and looked and I said, I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump. And then at the end, something lit up in my head and I said, I'm just going to go back tomorrow and see what happened. So I arrived the next morning in uh, the restaurant and the apprentice who was ahead of me was all excited because he didn't want to clean the kitchen or he didn't want to peel potatoes and onions and everything. He hit me down in the vegetable cellar. And then uh, uh, two weeks later, the chef used to come down in the cellar and sees me sitting on a milk crate down there peeling carrots. And he said, what the heck are you doing here? I fired you. Go home to your mother. I said, I'm not leaving. He grabbed me, tried to pull me physically out. I put, dug in my head and said, I'm not leaving. And then he didn't know what to do. He obviously was like a scene. He was yelling and everything. I'm good for nothing. Go back home. And then uh, at the end, he called the owner of the uh, restaurant and said, you know, I don't know what to do with this kid. I fired him. He should go home to his mother, but he doesn't want to leave. And the owner said, well, maybe, maybe I send him to the other hotel we have and maybe he can start there. So I said, okay, that sounds better. I'm not going home. And then I left and I started to work in the other place, in the other hotel. And there, the chef was a woman. And he, she told me basically, said, okay, just do your job. Don't make any noise and everything will be fine. And so and then it started to get better. And about a year later, we went uh, to well, school. Well, you started to get better. I feel like there's obviously a lesson in here, which is not only don't kill yourself and go back to work, yeah. but there's some element of perseverance. Like this... Your father told you you were good to not, for nothing. The chef then that you yes, looked sir. up to and you were working for and you loved cooking, the chef essentially told you you were good for nothing. Yeah. And what made you inside feel like, okay, there's something in me that wants to cook. You didn't even look for another job in another industry, which you yeah. could have found, yeah. I'm sure, even at the age of 14. Uh, what made you really deep down want to go back? Did you want to prove yourself to your father, to the chef? I think part of it, it was me. That's what I really wanted to do, even at that young age. And you know, how could you tell? How do people uh, know? Because I had no idea about anything else, maybe, or I didn't uh, think about anything else. Was it I, love for mother? Uh, maybe the love from the mother. And my mother was like an angel. She was amazing. And but I think for me, cooking was it. I didn't want to become a mason or a carpenter or things like that. I used to hate that. That I knew because. My stepfather was building the house by year by year. He added on things. Whenever he had money, he built a little bit on or did something. And he always had me work with him and I hated it. And, so I, and, and yet I can feel like you might, like 
Given what you said, you might have liked that just because, again, he's using the ingredients of nature to build, you know, and, and it's but a craft. But like I didn't like him. That's so the that problem. was the big problem, yeah. yeah. And I think my mother was amazing and I loved her and she loved me and my grandmother too. So I think it was the connection really I had with her which made me like what she was doing. And I think that's probably a big uh, reason why I went into cooking. I'm picking these 15 episodes yeah. out of the 100, not because they're the best. All 100 are great. People always ask me, what, what's my favorite episode? There's really no answer. It's it's almost like it's easier for me to say what are my what the worst episodes were. Fortunately, none of them are in this 100. But um, the next episode uh, uh, was right after Wolfgang Puck, Sebastian Maniscalco. Just by coincidence, it's a weird coincidence, actually, that it was the very next episode. And... Here I had never been to Wolfgang Puck's restaurant in my life, and then two days in a row I go there because Wolfgang Puck uh, invited me for the first time, and the second time Sebastian Maniscalco had started his career as a waiter in um, the Four Seasons, the Four Seasons, yeah. where Wolfgang Puck's restaurant is in New York City, and so we went right back down there the next day because Sebastian yeah. wanted to do the podcast where he first worked. It was sort of his way, so. Many people again don't know who this guy is, which yeah. is kind of amazing. He, Forbes had him on his highest on the highest paid comedians list. He made fifteen million dollars as a comedian last That's year, unbelievable. which yeah. he wasn't in any movies, wasn't on any TV shows. It was all from touring on the road. And we talked about that. How do you build up such an audience without like the a national platform like a TV show? Uh, and I think this is important for anybody in personal branding, like the kind of high touch he did with his quote-unquote customers, his fans. And it was really interesting. Um, I'll tell you the main thing that was interesting. I mean, there was a lot of things that were interesting in that podcast, but it was funny. You know, every comedian's got a kind of like kind of their everyday voice yeah. and then their funny voice. <laughs> and he and I were talking, and you, Steve, because you talk all the time, yeah, you, were talking to his, you were talking to his manager like a few feet behind us, and suddenly he switched into his funny voice, and he's like, uh, yo, we're uh, we're busy over here. Yeah. We have a little quiet, and it was just funny. Like his funny voice was just funny. I started laughing, and so. But anyway, that's an interesting podcast to listen to. Once I became comfortable on stage, I started kind of peeling the layers off and and really showing my true self of who I really am and kind of how I act around the house. Not that I'm walking around the house going what. But uh, you know, but even though you say that is funny, but I would have never done that. that what I just did in an interview ten years ago, huh. you know, why is that? Be, uh, not comfortable with myself, not confident in myself that that might be funny, or uh, even even interviewing, even going on these TV shows that I've been on today. I noticed that what I was doing on these TV shows, I would have never been able to do ten years ago because I would have not allow. I would have been editing myself. What What do you think changed? At some point, so you've been doing comedy, let's say for for twenty years almost, or maybe more, maybe less twenty. 20. So, uh, what do you think changed around year ten that allowed you to be more yourself, both in terms of talking about your personal life and in terms of like this almost persona that you that you're comfortable with now? Yeah, it, it was just that comfortability on stage, that knowing whatever I kind of. Uh, play through this instrument is going to be funny because I've honed the instrument so so much over time that I know that uh, 
whatever whatever I might be talking about. It could go spin class with my wife. It could be going on an airplane. It could be me going to a tech business, which I recently did, to see how people behave now in the new uh, work environment. I used to work at United Airlines when, uh, 1996, and there was cubes. You sat in a cube, and you went home. Now you go to a business, and you know, people are running on a treadmill, typing an email. There's ping pong in the commissary. You know, It looks like camp. So... Anything that I put, kind of put through this filter, I know my point of view. And once you get the point of view down, I think a lot, a lot of it is so much easier because now you have a, a a a point of view you're talking through, opposed to just kind of trying to find yourself on stage and just you know when I first started, I was completely angry. I was not likable. I didn't laugh at myself on stage. Nobody was in on the joke. You know. It, it, the way I think is a little absurd, but I made it sound like I was talking at the audience rather than like, hey, everybody else outside this room is crazy. We're the normal ones. You know, like I, I was talking at the audience like they were the problem. So again, that's just time. It takes time to kind of feel comfortable on stage. And after uh, 2005, it was like eight eight years in, I felt like, oh, right, now I'm starting to feel like Sebastian Maniscalco on stage uh, rather than a... Uh, a copy of of him in in some distorted way. So uh, and and then that translates to all aspects of life. Uh, just being yourself. Like I, I was a little bit more introverted when I first started doing comedy. Even when I would check into a hotel, I didn't really talk to the anybody. I would just head down it. You know, get the key. You know, now I come in. Hey, how you doing? How's it going? It's just a little bit more freeing now that I know who I am. I know myself, and I'm very confident in what I'm doing. And it's kind of bled into all aspects of my life. So, 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 like for someone listening to this and saying to themselves, you know, I might not want to be a stand-up comedian, but I want to be myself. Like this guy is talking about, how can someone learn a little bit more how to be a little more authentic in their daily interactions? Like, is there a way to kind of skip part of those ten years? If, even if you're not going on stage seven times a night? Uh, whatever it is, it, it doesn't have to be stage. It could be whatever you're doing. Uh, and I think over time, you'll begin to you know, peel those layers off, whether you want, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to be a musician, you want to be a teacher, whatever it is. I'm sure when you come out of college and you're teaching a class, uh, you're not the same person as you are when you're 40 years old teaching that same class because you have all that experience to draw from. So I don't think there's shortcuts. I don't think you skip ten years. It's you gotta you gotta go through the 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 time and the pain and and, and to really find out who you are. And it, it doesn't have to be like I said. I'm just speaking because I went on stage to do it. But if you're a businessman, it's like you got to be in there at uh, six o'clock in the morning, pounding the pavement, trying to uh, to make money. And uh, and again, it might not happen a year, two, three, four years. But is, if you feel passionate about it, the whole thing is passion you got to feel passion what you're doing if you didn't feel passion and doing these uh, these three t- three times a week you're doing this right you, you i i would tell if you're not passionate about it i could tell right away that you really care about this thing you took time to read the book there's a lot of people that don't even read the book or they read a couple pages or they'll get like a synopsis or whatever the the fact that you know you took some time and, and did some research tells me that the guy's passionate about what he's doing so you can't really substitute that passion and anything that you're doing so what I would advise these people out there that are listening to your show, if they have a passion and then they want to be themselves and whatever, you got you got to go out there and 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 work 
I mean, like, there's no, I wish I had like a magic formula to tell you. Next episode I'll skip to here is uh, episode 338, Michio Kaku. Kaku. Michio Kaku. Kaku. I would say he, Michio, and Neil deGrasse Tyson are the Carl Sagan of our times. Absolutely. And um, either one could be like, they're not, you know, they're they're the most well-known physicists and they've really, they've really made physicists, physics accessible and interesting to anybody and physics and astronomy. And, uh, you know, Michio Kaku uh, wrote a book, the, the future of humanity. Um, Let me just, let me just see all his books. Yeah, and while you're doing that, yeah, just I, I found the future of humanity as latest book just very accessible, very easy to understand, and it made you feel like it wasn't as daunting. And you know, yeah, you got a yeah, sense so, of excitement about it. Right. So he, he wrote The Future of Humanity, he wrote Physics of the Future, Parallel Worlds, Physics of the Impossible, The Future of the Mind. Um, and in the future of humanity, he's talking about like, well, how are we gonna travel to Mars? How are we gonna travel through galaxies how are we gonna could we be immortal what's our destiny beyond earth but it's not in sort of a way where he's lecturing it's what i really learned from him in the process of talking to him is that he thinks in terms of questions and not answers most people think in terms of answers most people think that they know everything and that they think that since they know everything that's how they make their decisions but he basically is, assumes the first thing you should do in any situation is ask, what if? Like, what if we went to Mars? That means we're going to have to spend years of, you know, sitting in a ship. So maybe there's a better way. What if, what if we can put our consciousness into a computer and send the computer? Yeah. Uh, or, or, or then what if, what if we could beam on light our consciousness you know if we if it's if it's not just electricity but we can put our consciousness program it into photons or if we can beam that and then does that make us immortal would it be the same soul uh is this how we could get across galaxies well okay what if the solar system was going away and we needed to get across galaxies well time you know is it possible that you know, we know time and space curve, so could time and space fold? I don't know. I'm not dis- describing it properly, but everything sort of started with this super fascinating what if. And I think his skill was he always knew how to ask the right what if. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like where uh, Tony Robbins says, like, you could better your life by having better questions. And mm. like, have you ever you- sent me that quote? That's a great <laughs> quote. <laughs> but I also, in another quote i think is applicable with him where like albert einstein said you know if if you if you really understand it well you could explain it very simply right you know and i think some people try and hide behind an implied profundity or like obfuscate things and he has the capacity which it takes a lot a lot of work i mean it's like nathaniel hawthorne said it's to write easily is very hard you know to make it seem simple is is a very hard thing well, well you figure to get to where he is uh you know being you know this amazing professor and author and he's been on tv a billion times explaining physics and he's you know again he's like right. a carl sagan of our times uh and to think so deeply about these issues in order to get that training he probably had to go through 
decades of the most boring math. Like, or <laughs> not, I shouldn't say boring, the most difficult math. Right, sure. But, but there's no math in any of his books. He's, yeah. he's explaining it all in terms of like, well, if we can get to Mars, here are the problems that could result. What if, you know, and then here's how we could you know, solve yeah. these what ifs. And it's just, I, I strongly recommend reading The Future of Humanity and then thinking about the issues in your own life and kind of transforming those problems into what ifs. He, he sort of removed problems by saying, what if, and then building the, I'll, I'll give you an example. So he's come on now twice. Actually. Yeah, this was the yeah. first one. The second time he came on was the other day when we also had William Shatner on, uh, Captain Kirk from Star Trek. So we talked about some of the physics of Star Trek. And and he, he, you know, everybody always is fascinated by the technology in Star Trek. Like the transporter, t you know, teleports you from the ship to the planet. Yeah. And so Michio Keiko said when he was a grad student, they would start thinking, well, what if the transporter could happen what and then he builds the bridge between now and the outcome the outcomes on the tv yeah. show the transporters created in the 23rd right. century so what would have to happen Wh what if that existed in the 23rd century what has to happen in order for us to get there and he starts that's when his mind starts working and reverse well, engineering we, it yeah we it, have yeah. to we have to quantum entanglement has to be bigger than atoms and you know we'd have to figure out how to transport consciousness and all these things. So his what if is almost not a way of having problems, but a way of solving problems. Like let's say you want, let's say you, Steve, yeah, uh, wanted to write a best-selling novel. Uh, instead of saying, oh, James, help me, James, you read nineteen, <laughs> help me. Instead of saying, oh, it's too hard for me, or that's a big problem, or I'd have to be friends with lots of agents and publishers and all that. You you would say, you know, what if I could write a best-selling novel? What has to yeah. happen? Well, I'll read some best-selling novels now, and I'll, uh, what's a topic that's interesting to me where I can put a thriller-esque component to it? And, you know, you I think reading The Future of Humanity is really a guide to, to what if. And also, it's a beautiful way to see Michio Kaku's pure awe of, of what he, of, of the universe. And that's why he's so... He was so interested in conquering the math so then he could deal with these deeper, yeah. more interesting issues, philosophical issues. And I'm going to pay you a compliment because the other day when we had William Shatner and Michio back here, who's just a terrific guy, you you didn't know. Like we had asked Michio and he, at the last minute, you know, we asked him and he came in and you were able to hold your own with these people. I mean, I'm still like... It was whoosh. Right? A lot of it was over, you know. Yeah, you flashed uh, a sign to me. <laughs> Michio Keiko's in the audience. So I had to figure out how to segue. Like William Shatner is great at kind of holding the stage. Yeah. I had to figure out how to segue from the fascinating things he was saying. I didn't really want to interrupt yeah. him. But also I wanted to bring Michio on the stage at the right point, And they knew each other. They were friends. Yeah. And it was a, they hugged each other. And then we were also talking. was correct because he was so overjoyed in Shatner you know, uh, was a terrific interview as well. But he, you know, he appreciated like how art imitated life and back and forth. And, you know, just, uh, and I think people like Kaku appreciated the 
demonstration of some of these concepts in Star Trek, and they were debating about whether it could be real or not. But it was really a cool interview. Yeah, and I was uh, everybody was so well, that was one of the few times we had like a big audience yeah. for the podcast, and everybody was like, when Michio came on the stage, everyone was clapping, and the conversation was just so great. People, I mean, there were like a hundred photos posted on Twitter by everybody. Just oh, that's they, great. They, yeah. It was kind of a memorable moment. How do you come up with all the questions you come up with? Like maybe maybe you've been doing this for so long, you're not really aware of the process in your brain, but it's very different from from most people's. Your book is filled with more questions and solutions. Well, you know, when I watch science fiction movies, I say to myself, what in this movie violated the laws of physics? When I see Harry Potter, in fact, that's of course a magic uh, uh, movie about magic, but I realize that, well, very few laws of physics are violated, even in Harry Potter. Once we understand the motion of molecules and can manipulate molecules, we can do things that most people would consider magic. And so writing this book, I asked the same question. What prevents us from laser pointing? What prevents us from living nearly forever? What prevents us from going to the stars? And then I realized almost nothing. The laws of physics are compatible with everything inside that book. And then every time you come up with a solution, though, it seems like you're looking at, well, what questions does this lead to? Like, for instance, if if we solve this pre uh, problem of anti-aging, of the cancers, you know, may, may, of the cells dividing instead of 60 times, 1,000 times, well, then uh, what do we do about the resulting cancers that could result? So it seems like every solution, you, you try to push yourself a little further than the solution and say, well, what... 10 problems might occur here. Right. In other words... Um, like when, you push yourself. Uh, right. Because, you see, people have... Science fiction writers have explored many of these avenues, but they haven't looked at the consequences and the physics and the principles that may or may not make this uh, possible. Now, when I wrote the book Physics of the Impossible... I said that, well, there are three categories of impossibility. Some things are just unlikely, but well within the laws of physics, like starships, for example. Unlikely, but compatible with the laws of physics. Then things are at the borderline where they just may be possible and may not be possible, like time travel. That's at the real cutting edge of what we know about the quantum theory. Then there are things which are just impossible. <laughs> that is, uh, uh, um things that are impossible, like violating the conservation of matter and energy. That simply violates everything we know about the universe. So when you put it that way, you begin to realize that every proposition in science fiction, you can pick apart. Is it simply plausible? Is it possible but unlikely? Or is it simply impossible? So when you look at it that way, then you realize that there are gradations, that you, every question has another answer, which begs more questions. But that's good, because that's what science is all about. The very next podcast after that, number 339, was Tyra Banks. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, uh, an amazing person. I mean, they're in their 29th season of America's Next Top Model. I mean, to have even one season of a TV show is amazing. And of course, she developed her expertise. She was a supermodel. So she, she had a whole career as an amazing supermodel, making probably millions of dollars that way, but then transforming into a TV mogul and producer and genius but i'll i'll let people listen to the clip and the episode if they want the main thing i got out of it was nobody knows anything i was gonna say the same thing yeah which by the way we could have gotten from almost every one of these podcasts <laughs> but but i'm very interested in media 
And she calls up her agent and says, what about a combination of, you know, models with American Idol? Which seems like, it's like the perfect example of idea sex. Yeah. Like a huge idea that's a billion dollar industry combined with another billion yeah. dollar media franchise. Why wouldn't that be great? And every agent and producer said, nah, nah, just forget it, Tyra. Just stay at home. And she just started the show on her own. And uh, boom, 29 seasons later, it's still like one of the best shows on TV. I mean, and, the most popular shows on TV. And coming from the person who started Choose Yourself, you know, you definitely, I knew you would appreciate that. And I'm sure you also appreciated her compliments towards your hair. She said it was terrific. She yeah. was, really liked it. Well, well, you know, she had a lot of skills that were very charming, charismatic. Like you could look at her and say, oh my gosh, she's stunningly beautiful. And in a very interesting way, right? She has this very interesting look yeah. and, and, and combined with being stunningly beautiful. Um, but it's clear that that is not the reason for her success. She, she, you know, when you talk to her, you see the discipline. By the way, her mom was there, so you see the effect of the of having good people uh, around you. Uh, she's creative. She works hard. You could see from the show how hard she works and how dedicated she is to it. Like she took a, uh, she herself took a season off from being on the show and just being. She was just a producer, but she got back because she saw that you know she really added a lot of value to it by being on it. Just amazing. And then I will say this, and um, maybe not many people know it because it didn't happen during the podcast, although I posted it on Instagram. She did a big favor for me right afterwards. Uh, uh, she sent a video message to my daughter, and I explained the reasons why this was important to me, and she was like, no problem. And uh, uh, she did it 59 seconds on the dot, <laughs> which means I could post on Instagram, which has a 60-second limit. So she's such a pro, and she really, I really appreciate it, Tyra. Again, that's another one we hope comes on again. One day I was in my kitchen um, in Los Angeles, and I'd woken up, and I'm having my underwear, like granny panties. Don't, get, don't think of the glamorous uh, Victoria's Secret panties, <laughs> like the not hot underwear. But I go in my kitchen, and I'm making some tea, and then I look out the window, and in my head popped wow, there's that show called American Idol and some girl named Kelly Clarkson just won and that's a really cool show. But then there's also that show, The Real World on MTV and you get to see people living together and their struggles day in and day out. What if I combine the competition part of American Idol with the seeing how they live of the real world and set it in the modeling industry? It came to me like that. And I tell my agent, and my agent at the time was, was like kind of like a, uh, agent that booked me for commercials, not a modeling agent, but like a theatrical agent. And I told him my idea and he was like, models are unsympathetic characters and vapid. Nobody wants to watch that. Well, he, why are people so wrong sometimes? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, every crazy. girl in the world was watching this show yeah. and, their, and their father. Yeah. <laughs> and she told me when she, when she was making that tea, she, she called me and she goes, I got this idea. And I was like, Wow. That's pretty amazing. But then when she told me what he said, it was like, what? what? <laughs> why, do you think, why do you think people are so wrong sometimes? You know, Middlemen. I, th I think a lot of it is their own preconceived notions. Um, a lot of it is they want to keep a lot of us in our place. You know, oh, you're just a model. You stay yeah. over there. Um, or going into stereotypes and not looking deeper. Cutting an idea off before you can actually even hear um, the idea. So then how did you avoid 
giving him, like outsourcing too much of your self-esteem on this idea to him. Like you basically yes, knew so that this was a good idea. How did you go around his was, opinion? It was my third time that I pitched a show to him. This was the third one that he said was not a good idea and I was tired of it. And so I called my best friend at the time um, and still very super duper close friend, uh, Kenya Barris. Kenya created Blackish, very successful right. writer. At the time he was a staff writer, successful, but not like the juggernaut that he is today. They went to elementary school together. Yeah, we've oh, known wow. each other since we were six years old. And, um, and so I was like, Kenya, I'm so tired of my agent. I have this idea. I told him the idea. He's like, Ty, that's the third good idea. He goes, I'm tired of this. And I was like, what can we do? So he took it to his agency and connected me to his agency. And his agency connected me to a man by the name of Ken Mock, who was like the godfather of very early competition reality shows. And I had um, like a little dinner with Ken Mock in LA. I told him my idea and he's like, that's a great idea. And a couple of weeks later, we're pitching it. Kenya helped develop it. Ken helped me develop it. And we sold the idea. Now, Ken, he um, confesses that Ken thought I was going to be a vanity producer. And that's where you put your name on something and you don't do any work. So he was shocked that I had so much natural knowledge about how to produce television and that I lived in the editing bay after we had finished shooting. I would like order barbecued ribs and camp out with the lead editor, Michael Policow, and we would just chow down on ribs and edit, edit, edit like all day and all night. And we hit that first season and it was super successful. Well, I think also this, this behind the scenes aspect of what makes a good model, uh, which comes out in the show, it was so uh, interesting because then it made clear to all these little girls that it's not just about looks, it's about how you present yourself and personality and all of these other things. Like, I don't know, what makes a good model? And it's also not just about cookie cutter beauty. My mom mm -hmm. really, uh, at a young age, instilled in me that there's so, so many different types of beauty. And so I'm super attracted to things that are not the cookie cutter. And that's one of the major messages of Top Model too, is you don't have to be, you know, this kind of hair and this look and this eye and this booty and this boob. There's so many different types of quirks that are amazingly beautiful. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.